Well, I'm really appreciative of my staff for having made sure that all the details were in place for today. Coming in on Friday is maybe not the best idea from a trip uh, because you have no office time to get acclimated and are we covered for Sunday? It's gone well, so we've been covered. So thank you, staff. Uh, I was a little... I was unsure as I stepped into the church this morning. Well, many of you know that we had the great privilege my family uh, traveling to Paris this last week. Our son, Drew, was studying abroad for the semester uh, and was in Paris. And so we thought, well, we can't let Drew go to Paris and us not go as well. So we joined him and we had an amazing time. As you can imagine, we saw lots of amazing things. Many of you have been to Paris. Many of you dream of going to Paris. Uh, sorry about what I'm about to tell you. Uh, we saw the Eiffel Tower, of course, the Mona Lisa. We saw that with about 200 other people. Uh, it was underwhelming. <laughs> we saw cathedrals of various renown, ancient streets, uh, ancient walls, ancient artwork. There's a lot of old things in Paris. The Louvre houses the oldest known human sculptural representation that we know of in the world. It's over 9,000 years old. And I don't want you to get too jealous that we saw it. It looked like something that a kid would make. <laughs> but we saw a lot of wonderful things. But if you look beyond the glitz and glamour of Paris, you see signs of distress. Notifications were posted on buildings, various buildings that had instructions for what you're to do if there's an act of terrorism. There was homelessness, of course. And those amazing cathedrals, which I love, by the way. I love the architecture. I love the feeling that you get walking into a cathedral. It's heaven and earth coming together. That's the thought behind the architecture. And the stained glass, all of that, I just love. And so I was looking forward to going into these cathedrals, but friends, I got to tell you that most of the cathedrals that we went into felt more like museums than they did churches. They were sparsely attended. Many of them were empty. In the nine days that we traveled various places in France, I saw one priest the whole time, and I saw one nun. This was the center, in many ways, of the Holy Roman Empire under Charlemagne. This was a, a center for Roman Catholicism for many, many centuries, and yet the signs of it were that it was fading. They, of course, have immigration controversies. That was hitting the news while we were there. Signs of economic disparity wherever you went. Friends, what I'm trying to say to you is we glamorize and we romanticize Paris. But in many ways, they're experiencing a lot of the heartache that we've been lamenting together during this Advent season in our own country. France, of course, has a revolutionary history. Many of you know that. And in, in some ways, it's kind of utopian. There's this utopian idea that comes out at times. And yet, this country keeps finding itself wrestling with the darkness time and again. Not unlike our country. And I think if we're honest, not unlike humanity in general. 
I was struck by a biblical scene that was painted and also sculpted in various places throughout Paris and then in Versailles, the story of Cain and Abel. I don't know why the artists love that story. I got to tell you, each of the, the pieces of artwork that we saw of that story were beautiful and in some ways, artistically, well done, well painted, well sculpted. But in other ways, they weren't beautiful at all. They were horrifying. They were disturbing. I was looking at these pieces of artwork and I was wondering, why is it that humans often choose the way of Cain? Why is it that time and again throughout our history, we can see the Cains rising up and killing the Abels? Why is it that darkness descends so often? Our text this Christmas Eve Sunday is Isaiah chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to turn there. But I want to set the stage with Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1 by backing up just a verse or two so that you can hear the context for the words that Isaiah is about to speak to his people. So let's pick it up at Isaiah chapter 8 verse 21. They will pass through the land, dejected and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will curse their king and God. They will turn toward heaven and look to the earth, but they will see only distress and darkness, random movement, and the anguish of doom and banishment. Again, we find our friends, the Israelites, suffering. This has been a reoccurring theme throughout the book of Isaiah. It is a book that is coming to a people that are paying for their sins and the sins of others that is being enacted upon them. It is a book that is filled with much suffering. And we've been spending time this Advent season wrestling with that. And I know that's not always the way that we tend to preach. But friends, I think it's an important part of preaching to lament together. To give voice to the pain and suffering that is in our world, in your life, and in my life, and in the lives of our friends and family, our nation, the nations of the world. Life has not been good for our friends, the Israelites. Beaten down and fatigued, the people of God have experienced loss, tremendous loss. From one perspective of reading this text, it speaks to the loss that comes from the Assyrians. Another perspective is that this could be a text that's coming to us after the exile. After the Babylonians have come and and destroyed Jerusalem, that this text is, is a text that speaks of what's happening after that. But in either case, whether it's the Assyrians or the Babylonians, friends, This text that I'm about to read to you doesn't come to a people that have experienced comfort, peace, tranquility. It comes to a people that has suffered tremendously. The light has set on the people of God. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine they've had the promised land, they were were gifted the promised land by Yahweh himself, and, and now they're coming to the reality that they're losing the promised land. The northern kingdom, Israel, has already fallen at this point. And and now Assyria, or is it Babylon, that's knocking on the door of Jerusalem, the southern kingdom of Judah, it's about to fall too. 
Oh, the light, the light is set for God's people. This people that were supposed to be a light to the nations, they're suffering. Despite the ominous circumstances, friends, all is not lost. And I know you're glad about that because it would be a very depressing sermon if I kept going down that path, right? Yeah, I got some head nods. All right. We're going to shift gears. (laughs) Uh, It's at... It's at this point that we're reminded that even though Cain does kill Abel in that Genesis text, somebody's still working. Somebody's still present in the midst of all of that. Who is it? It's God. Even though Cain does kill Abel, even though there is darkness that is descending, even though the people of God are going through a great darkness... Guess who's still working? God. God is still working. In fact, friends, I hope you believe today that God is always working. Amen? Even in the midst of our lowest of lows, friends, I want you to have hope that God is still working. So at this lowest point, where there's anguish and doom, then the prophet steps up. And he proclaims these words starting in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. Nonetheless, those who were in distress won't be exhausted. At an earlier time, God cursed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But later, he glorified the way of the sea, the far side of the Jordan and the Galilee of the nations. And then, friends, hear these words. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in pitch dark land, light has dawned. Have you ever been at that very, very low point in life where you just had very little hope? And then suddenly something happens, the light begins to shine again, and it changes your entire reality. Have you ever experienced that before? That's what's happening in this text. At this very low point, in this valley of the shadow of death, here the light is beginning to dawn again. Another opportunity at life is being offered. The punishment that felt like it was going to be all-consuming and that it felt like it was going to be eternal is actually revealed to be temporary. It is not an eternal punishment that the Israelites are experiencing in Isaiah's work. And this has me thinking about another of our experiences on our trip in France. We had the opportunity to go to Normandy while we were there and to see many of the D-Day beaches that played such a significant role on that day. I think in some ways the descent into global darkness of World War II has some similarities to this very text. Like Isaiah's original audience, tormented as they were by war and the threat of war, Many Europeans have thought the mad, maybe thought the madness of Hitler was never going to go away. That that darkness was going to descend and stay there forever. 
But of course, we know the story of World War II. We know that that's not what happens. We know that through the sacrifice of scores and scores of young people, soldiers that went overseas, gave their life, that that darkness was beaten back, that light began to dawn again. Sixty years later, we go to the beaches, and you see very little of the evidence of war. There are a few bunkers, a few craters, but guess what? Life has gone on. Lightness, the light has dawned again. Of course, our text today doesn't follow the same battle plan as World War II, but it has some familiar imagery for us. So let's pick it up at verse 3. After they're told that this light is dawning, Isaiah says this, You have made the nation great. You, Yahweh, have made the nation great. You have increased its joy. They rejoiced before you as with joy at the harvest, as with those who divide plunder rejoice. And on the day of Midian, you've shattered. You sh- you've shattered the yoke that burdened them, the staff on their shoulders and the rod of their oppressor. Because every boot of the thundering warriors and every garment rolled in blood will be burned, fuel for the fire. Before we are told what the plan of God is, the light is dawning, there's going to be a change that's going to happen in the circumstances of the Israelites. Before we're ever told about what that plan is going to be and what God is actually going to do, Isaiah wants you to get excited. He's wanting his people to get excited. And for good reason. They've been suffering horribly. There's no reason to be excited. There's no reason to be hopeful. We've already heard that they were at the lowest point, this place of anguish and doom. But before he can offer the words of what the plan is to save God's people, he wants his people to start feeling hope. He uses two metaphors for us. In the ancient world, a good harvest was a reason to celebrate. I I suspect that even today, a good harvest is a reason to celebrate. But in the ancient world, everything, if you were a farmer, everything depended on you having a good harvest. The very life you had, the very breath you had, the very life of your families, of those that you were supporting, depended on you bringing in the crops, bringing in a good harvest every single time. To not bring in a good harvest risks life and death. And in some ways, that's changed for us today. So even though we do celebrate a good harvest today, I'm sure farmers celebrate a good harvest, we also have safety nets built in. There's insurance for loss of crops. When we were pastoring in California, I discovered that raisins are made in a way that I had never really thought about before. Obviously, I know they come from grapes, but wasn't that dumb. But what I didn't, I wasn't prepared for is that they lined the vineyard with paper. That, so they cut the grapes off and they just laid them on the ground and let them dry in the vineyard themselves. I had never seen that growing up in Wyoming and Colorado. That's not a site you often have. But in California, there it was. Well, friends, that's, that's kind of a precarious situation because what happens if it rains? What happens if something happens while your grapes are out there drying under the sun to make raisins? Well, we have insurance for that now. 
We have governmental subsidies that can help farmers in, in the midst of crisis, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of too much water, not enough water. But in the ancient world, they had no such safety nets. And so everything hinged on, on you bringing in your crop every single time. And you can imagine all the work, all the stress, all the worry that went with this every season. So that when you came to the end of your time, and you brought in the harvest, and you knew you were going to be able to take care of your family, what did you do? Oh, you celebrated. In fact, the, the, the festivals that we find in Scripture are often attached to the harvest, because this was a time to, to rejoice. This was a time to say, thanks be to God that we can care for each other, that God is caring for us. Let's rejoice. Let's have a party. Well, Isaiah's wanting you to get excited. Are you getting a little bit excited yet? Mm, maybe not yet. Okay. Well, we better go on. So he's not done with the farming analogy. He follows that up with a battle analogy. And maybe this one will resonate with us a little bit too as we're thinking about World War II. And, and we like that story, don't we, of, of the valiant warrior defeating the enemy that's a story that we like to tell. I think in all cultures, they like to tell that story of the, the valiant warriors defeating the enemies, these dark powers, through sacrifice and loyalty. Well, it seems that the ancient people like that story as well, good overcoming evil, because Isaiah spends more time actually talking about this second illustration of why you should be excited, because look, a battle has been won. Pulling on the memories of his people, Isaiah calls to mind the defeat of the Midianites. Do you remember them? You might remember them if I tell you who their valiant warrior was that helped the people of God defeat the Midianites. That strong and mighty soldier named Gideon. Do you remember Gideon? He wasn't your prototypical warrior. He begrudgingly <laughs> did this, and he really didn't feel like he should be the leader. But that's the story that we know. That's the story that Isaiah is pulling from the memory of his people, even though they are in this dark place, even though they've experienced loss. Do you remember the Midianites? Oh, they were an oppressive force. There was nothing that the people of God could do against the Midianites, and then God raised up a valiant warrior. Then God raised up one who would lead his people Gideon, do you remember Gideon? Oh, God is, God saved his people in the past. Friends, he's doing it anew. He's doing it again, even in this place of anguish. God is going to raise up one who's going to lead us like Gideon led us in the past. He's going to lead us into safety, into promise. I wonder, are you feeling any excitement yet? Having set the stage, Isaiah has named the problem. He's named where they're at. He's been real about it. But then he's also named this new promise that's about to happen. And he's trying to get his hope, people to hope and believe in something new. And then he tells them the plan and he starts in verse 5. Because every... Let's start at verse 6. Excuse me. <laughs> a child is born to us. A son is given to us. And authority will be on his shoulders. 
He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Hmm. I don't know how you hear those words, but I've been, if I'm listening to Isaiah, I've been led into this spot where I should be excited. God is doing something new. Something amazing is about to happen, and the very first words of the plan are, there's a child coming. What? I mean, that's nice. We like children. We love our children. But a child is coming? Is a child going to defeat Assyria? Is a child going to delete, defeat Babylon? what's the hope here? What's, what's happening? And, and the thing is, we can't read these words too literally. What does a child coming suggest to us? Well, it suggests lineage. And it's not just the li- a lineage of an ordinary person. What Isaiah is pulling uh, from the people's history and from their past is this idea that, that there's a child that's coming that's a descendant of the king. Friends, what this text is trying to say to the Israelites is, friends, we have a king that is coming, a new king that is coming. And it's important that it's a new king because the sitting king, as Isaiah is speaking these words in real time, is a very terrible king of Judah, King Ahaz. Isaiah is raised up. He's called to be the prophet. And and one of the people that he prophesies against, speaks against, is King Ahaz. Because if you read the Old Testament, he's a terrible, terrible king. You want to know how terrible he was? He led his people, the people of God, into false worship. In fact, he took all the sacred things out of the temple of God, dedicated them to foreign gods. He nailed the doors of God's temple. Can you imagine? And Isaiah prophesies, prophesies, a child is coming, and no doubt he's thinking of the child of King Ahaz. Can you pull from your memory his son's name? Hezekiah. King Hezekiah. And although we read time and again how many of the the sons of the kings, particularly in the northern kingdom of Israel, followed the pattern of their father, we find that Hezekiah does not follow the pattern of King Ahaz. Whose pattern does he follow? King David. Because King Hezekiah raised up at a time of crisis, a time where his father had led his people into darkness. King Hezekiah is a king of righteousness. He's a king of wisdom. He opens up the doors of the sanctuary. He rededicates it back to Yahweh. He does righteous things for his people. No doubt Isaiah has in mind King Hezekiah. But as righteous as Hezekiah was, And as righteous as David was before him, who is his model. Friends, they were just men. Do you realize that? I know sometimes when we read our Bible, particularly the Old Testament, we tend to idealize these biblical characters. But if you pay attention to them, they're flawed in many ways, just like you and I. David was flawed. He did terrible things. And yet, time and again, he repented. He came back to God. That's why he's known as as a man after God's own heart. He didn't revel in sinfulness, but we find him being touched by the darkness, don't we? King Hezekiah was no different. That original sin 
that I've referenced a few times in the story of Cain and Abel never seems to go away completely, does it? Even though we're told the light is going to dawn, and even though as we think about biblical history, we see time and again that this is the case, that there are moments where righteousness breaks forth. There are moments where the people of God get it right. But friends, the darkness still lingers, doesn't it? These holy men, these men like Hezekiah and David, we lift up as as models for us. They stumble, and at the end of Hezekiah's life, he stumbles a bit. And darkness once again descends on Judah. But here's the thing about Scripture. And I hope you believe this. It's never dead. Scripture is not a dead document. We believe these words that I've been reading, all these words in here, we believe to be the living words of God. And what do we mean by that? We mean that for each and every generation that reads them, each and every person that comes across these words, that they can come to life for them, that they can speak truth into them, that they can speak into the realities of our life right now. We're not just reading a document that was for people 7,000 years ago or whatever the time is. We believe that God's words are coming to life because of the Holy Spirit among us. <clears throat> so 200 years after Hezekiah, the ba- Babylonians we know descend upon Jerusalem and they do what the Assyrians could not do. The Assyrians knocked up uh, to the door. They came close. They did some bad things. But the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple of God. And the people of God find themselves in the darkness of exile. In other words, Cain keeps killing Abel. But again, let's be reminded that there's a person that's still working, always working. No doubt the exile generation turned to these very words 200 years later as they're coming back from captivity in Babylon. As they're coming back and making their way back to Jerusalem, no doubt they turned to Isaiah chapter 9 and remembered these words, a light is dawning. Hope is here. God is at work. The darkness had ended, at least for a time anyway, because nearly 700 years after Hezekiah, another empire descends upon upon the Holy Land and takes over. Another time of darkness falls. But something new is happening with this time. Because a child is born. And this child is unlike any other child we've seen before. There's something unique about this child. This child is going to change everything. When the gospel writers are searching and thinking, how in the world do we explain the incarnation of God? The the fact that God takes on flesh. The fact that God comes and dwells amongst people. How in the world are we going to explain that radical thought to people? They begin to search the scriptures. All they know is the Old Testament. They begin to pour over it. What, how did God prepare us for this? And guess what they turn to? Isaiah chapter 9. A light is dawning, for a child has been born. And that child changes everything. 
Who is the Messiah? How do we explain who the Messiah is? Well, he's the one who truly rules as God intended. His shoulders are the only ones that can truly carry the weight of what it means to be an ambassador of God Almighty. He's a wonderful counselor. That's not a clinical term. What that means is that he's wise and shrewd. Here's the one that knows how to deal with the snakes and the ravenous wolves of this world because there are many. I've called them Cain in this sermon. There are many of them, but this one is a wonderful counselor. He knows how to deal with them. He's a mighty God, the one who has the power to set the captives free from beyond even the borders of Judaism. This is one that's going to break down all the dividing walls that separate the people. Everlasting Father, the one who will care for the downtrodden, uplifting and loving people. Prince of Peace. Friends, this was always what the people of God were raised up to be, people of shalom, the well-being of God. They were supposed to embody this peace with one another. Of course, we find that time and again in the Torah, this command to live at peace with each other. But it wasn't just about the community extending peace and shalom to one another. It was about the people of God being a light to the nations by the way that they exhibited, lived out, embodied shalom with the other nations. And here is one who's finally going to lead the people of God into the place that they are supposed to be, into the kingdom that they are supposed to be a part of, the kingdom of peace. Finally, friends, if you've been following along as I've been trying to weave together a few different biblical texts, what I'm trying to suggest to you is that the Cain and Abel story is coming to an end. For a child has been given to us. A child has been born. And we know him to be Jesus Christ, Savior of the world. Amen? That story that is woven through the pages of our Bible, the Cain killing the Abel, The unrighteous killing the righteous. Friends, the antidote for that original sin that causes Cain to do that, the antidote is in Jesus Christ. The child has come, and there's something radically new about this child. He is the antidote for our sinfulness. That ancient curse is being broken. I think this would be a great place to end. But if we did that, we'd miss something. If the words of God are never dead, which I believe is true, they're never dead, then we have to ask ourselves, what might this text mean for us today in 2023? Jesus has come and will come again. We believe that. We proclaim that. But between those two comings, darkness still exists, doesn't it? Let's be real about it. It still exists. We're seeing it every single day that we turn on the news. We see it in our own lives as people are experiencing darkness. And there are times when it even feels like the darkness is winning against the light. No doubt, the lowest point of World War II, there were many, many good 
Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians who felt, this is it. Darkness has won. I sometimes feel like we're living in a time right now where it feels like darkness is winning. But it's at this point that the text speaks to us. Because a light is dawn, a child has come, he's the one, that's all been declared to us. It's verse 7, though, that I think you and I maybe need to hear today. There will be vast authority and endless peace for David's throne and for his kingdom. Establishing and sustaining it with justice and righteousness now and forever, the zeal of the Lord of heavenly forces will do this. Will do this. His kingdom, friends. This one that Isaiah is talking about, maybe he doesn't fully understand who he's talking about, but we know he's talking about Jesus. And through this one, his kingdom will never end. Amen? It did not stop at the birth in Bethlehem, nor even at the death at Calvary. That wasn't the extent of Jesus Christ's kingdom. The empty tomb suggests to us that the kingdom is still unfolding, still working. And yes, canes of this world are still rising up, still doing their dastardly things. But God of the heavenly forces is not finished. God is present. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this goal, Isaiah says. So friends, we can take heart. But you and I standing 2,700 years beyond Isaiah are called to witness to the work of God. Hope is here. Hope is here because God has come. And we are called not to just bear witness with our words, but we are to embody that truth in our very bodies, in our actions. This is the great mystery of Judaism and Christianity. God has chosen to work with us in completing his work. Mary and Joseph stand as the premier examples of this cooperative grace of God. And you and I are called to be just like them, to cooperate with God Almighty. We are told in verse 7 that God's kingdom is one of peace. So friends, we must be people of peace. It's not an option. We have to be people of shalom. His kingdom is one of justice and righteousness. And so this is who we are to be too. Not people of one or the other. You don't get a pick and choose. People of justice and righteousness. On this Christmas Eve Sunday, we acknowledge that the darkness can rear its ugly head. The Canes can still do their destruction. It's true. But for us people of God, a deeper truth has been planted deep within us. One that has been reverberating through the ages. Have you heard it today? The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Hope is here because God has come to be with us and God's kingdom never ends. As the praise team comes forward, I'm going to invite you just to spend a little bit of time reflecting with me in prayer. God, these haven't been easy texts for us to wrestle with from the book of Isaiah. Truth be told, they're very hard. And they can be discouraging at times.
But I think we've seen over this month that as we've carefully listened, that in the midst of naming the hardness, the difficulty, the darkness of this world, we've been reminded that you keep piercing it. Your light keeps dawning. You haven't given up on us. And so God, as we come to the end of this calendar year, look forward to a new year that we hope has better news for us. We know this, beyond a shadow of a doubt, we know this, that no matter what comes, you are a God that is with us, and so we can be people of hope. Thank you for that gift. We ask in Christ's name, amen.